You're listening to the Valley College Connection Podcast, where John Kawai and Scott Wigan, two Valley professors, engage in a conversation about success with educators and students. Each week, they'll sit down with a different guest to find out ways each of us have had to plan, persevere, and overcome to be where we are now. The show will also highlight resources and services that are working to make a difference at Los Angeles Valley College. John and Scott believe that all of us, and the college itself, are a work in progress. And in this podcast, they'll explore on a more personal level how the community can work together to support each other as we move forward with our goals. We are joined today by Dr. Elliot Coney, Black Scholars Counselor here at Los Angeles Valley College. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today, Elliot. Thank you so much for having me. We wanted to start off with uh, just a little bit of background, if you could uh, take some time to, to share with us you know, the, the path, the journey that, that brought you here to Valley College. If you could uh, take it back as far as you want, but, you know, we, we, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your, your experience as a student, you know, what high school, your college experiences were like, your previous work experience, again, sort of what brought you here to Valley. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me again. Um, so I am uh, from Los Angeles, California, specifically South Central Los Angeles. Um, I spent the majority of my compulsory education um, in the South Central area, I ended up moving um, to Culver City uh, with my grandmother, which was a decision made by my mom to kind of have really a much better environment academically and to be challenged a little bit more um, with regard to my schooling. Um, From there, I went to Palms Middle School um, as well as Palms Elementary, and then I um, did my last four years of high school at uh, Hamilton High School. Um, From there, I ended up being a football athlete, which I played since I was seven years old, and that led me to Hampton University. Um, I was in the process of actually looking to play football at Oregon State, um, and that process or that dream somewhat fell through very late for me. And um, at that time, being a first-generation student, not really knowing how to navigate, getting to college, um, my coaches had created a way for me to go to Hampton University. Um, I was sent there as a preferred walk-on because the recruitment uh, for California wasn't um, something very prominent at that time for the East Coast Historically Black Colleges. And once I had um, sent off my video, um, I ended up going there um, as a sports management major, um, which was still very challenging. Um, I think for me, having a very diverse background and being in Culver City uh, led me to want to have somewhat of a more cultured experience, though I at that time did not know a lot about the historically black colleges and universities. It was something that looking back on my trajectory and my accomplishment that was very pivotal and foundational in me being able to currently succeed in the way that I have. Um, So I ended up playing football at Hampton. Um, I did that for fully five years technically because I registered my first year. So I graduated from Hampton in 2005. Um, spent a little bit of time off working. My mother had gotten sick, so I had to return to Los Angeles and help with my special needs younger sister. And at that time, kind of really getting my first true taste um, of grown-up life post-graduate um, from Hampton University, I felt like I needed more education. Um, and just the opportunities at that time, thinking that the doors would open up somewhat, and they did not. Um, I know that I needed to kind of do something with my time, and that led me to USC. Um, where I got my master's in college administration and student affairs and really had a very transformative experience. Um, It was very unique in the sense that um, growing up in South Central LA, I never really thought that I would have gotten into USC without potentially being an athlete. 
and to have that experience um, looking back on where I came from and having USC be so close to my residence and to get in academically was something that really showed me that, you know, I could, you know, really pursue um, academics at a very high level. Um, and from there, after I completed my master's, I decided to write a, a thesis on African-American uh, football athlete challenges at PWIs. And from that experience, I really gained additional confidence in being able to write and really looking at possibly pursuing um, further education. Um, in between that time, I really began my academic higher education career. Um, I worked periodically as a graduate assistant at um, USC, and that segued me into um, working with the admissions, uh, School of Admissions there at USC, as well as working in the Center for Black Culture and Student Affairs, where I was supporting African-American students at USC. And uh, that experience also transitioned um, toward me looking at online education. Well, Elliot, let me ask you some questions. Okay. Because that was a mouthful. There's like 20 different questions. I <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. So let me ask you this. Let me roll it back to like okay. Hampton University. Gotcha. What sticks that in? Um, so Hampton University is in Virginia. Um, it's in Hampton, Virginia, which is a college town um, outside of the military service. Um, primarily, the college is really the big going show in the area. And what was the challenge of being a football player and being in college at the same time? Okay, um, that is a very good question. Um, it was a lot of challenges. Um, actually, my first semester in college, just the transition of the distance was very difficult. Um, I think being on the other side of the country with minimal support was a challenge in itself. Um, however, academically, um, I had some pitfalls in being able to also mature and grow and learn how to manage my time. Um, that was actually an issue that really kind of permeated my first year because, again, um, being on academic probation was something that wasn't um, ordinary for my uh, educational experiences. So I felt like I was somewhat defeated and initially had thought that, you know, college wasn't for me in that moment. So um, it, it really caused a lot of reflection. And again, you know, I really learned to get plugged into the system and really using all my resources on campus. So that was a very big challenge for me. So what were the resources that you felt were the most helpful when you were in Hampton? Um, really, it was having um, uh, we had like student mentors, just like a peer navigator kind of um, piece with regards to the athletes. Mm -hmm. So I think that that was very important because um, I got to really understand and I thought that I was really good with academics, but really understanding the process of how to study, how to prepare for um, some of my uh, exams, as well as some of my writing assignments. So I think having someone that's already experienced that process and helped me to really create a blueprint on mm -hmm. how to successfully do it was very, very fundamental. And then was it, how was the experience of being African-American on the West Coast and, on the, in the, and in the South? How is that different? Uh, it's very, very different. Um, I often... Um, have used the uh, relation analogy to um, the movie Remember the Titans. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever seen it, it's based um, on football in the South and integration. And one of the quarterbacks, which was a um, Caucasian American from um, California, he came to the South to play quarterback and they called mm -hmm. him Sunshine. Um, and that's kind of how I looked at it. Like I was like, a, even though I felt that I came there for culture, I think the diversity of the West Coast and Los Angeles being very liberal um, it was somewhat foreign to the people that were there just because they had an indoctrination or socialization mainly in the South. So coming with a different perspective, it was a big intergenerational culture shock for me because I felt like 
for the first time I understood that diversity was bigger than just race um, because predominantly all of us were African-American, but we had very vast experiences. And my socialization experiences and the friends that I grew up with and the views that I had and the experience that I had were not as germane to those individuals. So I think that that was a challenge to go along with the academic piece because I felt like I really didn't fit in. And I was like, wow, I came to a black college to fit in. And initially in my first semester, really semester and a half, I didn't really felt like I belonged and I really wanted to come back to Los Angeles to attend a community college. So do you think that helped you long-term in terms of just processing intellectually this conversation about race and education in college? Or do you think that it hampered you in terms of not having sort of support for your current views right now? Um, I, I think that it helped me a lot. And I think a lot of that came from my support system um, and not allowing me to like really give up on myself. Or I mean, there really wasn't an option. Like I called my mom like, yeah, I think I'm going to come home and go to West L.A., play football, and then try to transfer to a bigger D1 college. She's like, no, you're not. Hmm. You know, and it was really like no discussion. It, it was never a democratic process. It was like, this is what it is. You're going to be there. You're there. You're going to finish. And you had a wonderful college. But I had to really grow up to see that um, the more that I, I guess, disclosed or really felt the need to kind of um, engage varied viewpoints, it helped me to understand that there are differences. And though that may, my differences may not be initially accepted, it's something that can grow through further interaction. So um, I think it was very helpful. Um, initially, I did think that my cultured experience was a little strong in the sense that everywhere you went, it was a sense of unity and um, African-American pride that at that time, coming from where I came from in L.A. and being at a predominantly white high school, felt somewhat militant to me. So I think that, again, it's really the main reason why I really wanted to go to a historically black college because I really wanted that experience and that sense of culture and sense of belonging and being in an environment to where everything at that institution was catered to who I was as a student and as an African-American male. So, um, you know, after my f spring semester or halfway through my spring semester, there was like this kind of um, moment where I really came to the realization that I would kind of fully transitioned. Um, I think it really started with the athleticism piece um, and really creating strong bonds with my teammates mm -hmm. that really segued me to other student populations because as athletes, we're kind of in our own silo to a degree as well. So when I started to really break outside of that comfort zone and the in, um, individuals that I came into with my freshman year, you know, I really um, found to like love the experience primarily because I didn't come home my first year. So every you know break that we had um, for school, I went home with someone that was from the East Coast. So in my first year, I get to see a lot of states that I would never have been privy to prior to coming to Virginia. And I really got to see the whole East Coast in that first year from Florida to DC to Chicago. And at that time, I don't think, the only time um, before me going to my um, college at Hampton, I'd only been on a plane to go to my senior class trip, was to, which was to Puerto Vallarta, which was the senior class trip for all of the seniors that had just graduated. So I really didn't have a lot of you know domestic travel experience. So really having that and seeing how different the world, not even the world, like just the nation was in different states and how vastly different it was from California was very helpful in allowing me to grow and allowing to shape my perspective, uh, my understanding. So do you think 
being a student athlete is a positive or do you think that you would have had a different experience if you weren't on the football team and you were just there academically? Because I'm always sort of torn about the, 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 the amount of work we give to mm-hmm. student athletes. Mm-hmm. And does that help or does that harm? Do you have an opinion? Um, so I do. Um, I think for sure um, that the athletic experience and the football process to a lot of degrees was just a big support. Um, because you went in to an accountability process where coaches were accountable for athletes um, and then there were systems and infrastructure set up to ensure that you had additional support. And if I had been in a typical situation as a student and really trying to transition, I mean, depending on my level of help-seeking behavior, I may not have felt comfortable asking for help. But because I had this kind of add water family to some degree to where we went in and it was okay to say you needed help in math or English or you didn't know how to write, you know, a five page essay, um, it, it, it was something that was very transformational for me. Um, but I do also understand the limitations um, of athletes and the amount of work that we have with the demanding schedules that we have. But I think that the way that our schedules are set up, it's set to um, provide structure so even if you are somewhat very unorganized, just the day-to-day functions of like going to practice, waking up and having morning workouts, to watching film, to having you know, your whole day kind of um, prescribed, it, you naturally indoctrinate yourself to those elements in your everyday life where you start to really wake up early, you start to get things done in the same fashion. So I think that it is very helpful. And if you look at, I mean, I can't really pull it offhand, but um, in a lot of settings and academic spaces, if you look at um, some of the minority success, a lot of times the athletes are um, achieving greater than traditional um, students of the same like ethnicity. And I think a lot of that is because of that structure, because of the support systems that a lot of the athletes put in place. Now, that's different between a four-year and a two-year college, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't really speak that much to the two-year experience because I didn't really live that experience. But for me, being at a four-year and having the resources that I had, it was definitely very... Um, important very um it was very monumental to my success um and getting over the hump because again i went from having a one point i think to my first semester which was just terrible to um i think i had like a three one my second semester after i really learned the rope so to speak and really you know understood that i had to go to sleep I couldn't be up late, I couldn't be on the phone, I couldn't be out, but having that kind of freedom to not have a parent or someone tell you to like do this or do that, you know, you have to adjust on your own, and I definitely did adjust, it just took a little longer than I would have liked to uh, have happen. Okay, can I ask a question sort of about what you just described there? Mm-hmm. I'm curious, uh, the, the help-seeking sort of behavior that students have in general, mm-hmm. um, is there, with your experience as, as being a, a student athlete, is there, um, do you think a culture within athletics that almost lends itself to, to student athletes being more inclined to ask for help or, or at least to understand sort of the benefit of error analysis, you know, as, as perhaps a football team might, you know, be looking at film from the prior week and saying, okay, here's the things that we did wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, here's how we're going to do things differently like this that. week. Um, and then perhaps with the help of coaches and with the players understanding that, hey, you didn't do this correctly, and, and the player asking, like, well, what do I need to do better? And sort of not letting the ego get away in the way of, of those conversations. Do you think that that sort of, of dynamic um, is, is there? Does that perhaps um, foster some of the success that we 
perhaps see with student athletes? And is there any sort of crossover of that to other academics? I would say to a large degree, if I had to just use my own personal experience and what I've seen throughout um, my tenure as an athlete and as someone that's been in this space, I would say yes to a large degree. However, there's still a comfortability um, with coaches um, that still may not cross over in the academic setting. Mm -hmm. um, I just think every student comes to the collegiate experience or to the space with a bunch of different characteristics and experiences that largely shape what they see or what they perceive. And, and I think that um, in my experience of being in two different types of academic environments throughout elementary and middle school, um, and being in a predominantly black, Hispanic environment for some of my educational schooling, and then being in a predominantly white environment, which was definitely a shock in itself for high school, but um, was very helpful. I do think that for me, it's just the lack of familiarity with individuals and, and maybe ascribing to some sort of perception that may permeate your culture about certain individuals, mm -hmm. um, or the fact that, you know, being in a predominantly Hispanic black environment, we have teachers that we feel as though um, don't outright support us or don't understand us. So we kind of internalize this message and build up a, like a defense mechanism or a wall to not want to look stupid in class or not raise your hand or right, to, to, right. To, to, you know, just feel that sense of belonging. And some people, um, and again, I don't want to say some people, but just in my experience, I think that they're can be a lack of cultural competency to academic spaces that may be perceived as, and, and again, um, you know, initially microaggressive, even if we know to label it that at that time, we just know that it doesn't make us feel welcome sometimes. So I think that that kind of limits our help-seeking behavior as well as that kind of stereotype threat where if there's not a lot of me in the space, I don't want my incompetency or my lack of knowledge to represent everyone that looks like me, sure. you know, or be the representative for a whole culture or, or a group of people. So I think that it's a lot of nuances to that experience. But for me, I would say that um, definitely if I didn't get the help in class, I knew I can go back to my coaches or my um, athletic student support staff and have them now navigate and advocate for me across these spaces if I couldn't or didn't feel comfortable doing it myself. Thank you for, for, for sharing that. You know, and I asked a question just context because it's something that I'm, I'm continually interested in with our work that we're doing with tutoring and as we sort of look across mm -hmm. the campus about just in general the, the challenges that, that we see with students asking for help, um, having help-seeking behaviors, skills, and then also just the the sort of general feelings that people have about, you know, admitting that they've made mistakes and being able to sort of go back and analyze what they did wrong exactly. and understand that it's not something that's a reflection of, of who you are and what your ability is, but it's more a reflection of what your process is. And so I'm always sort of curious as to other experiences or, or, or cultures within a culture like, like mm -hmm. athletics culture that perhaps we can try to figure out ways to, to, to help students and all of us really understand, you know, how to sort of get past you know, sometimes the uncomfortable feeling of admitting that we don't know something and exactly. of asking for help. So, so sharing that is, is just provides more insight into that. Thank well, you. Thank you. Let me ask this as, as, a, as an Asian teacher, um, I read the stats about um, men of color mm -hmm. have a larger uh, struggle with help-seeking behavior. Mm -hmm. What kind of signaling can I do as a teacher 
that makes uh, men of color more comfortable asking questions in my class, seeking help in my class? Like, what kind of signaling uh, can a teacher do, do you think, to make uh, someone more comfortable? I think it, it's really simple, um, and I think that you know building rapport and, and social intelligence is very important. And I think you know the ability to listen and amplify is very important. Um, sometimes when we see something, um, I think it becomes a habit. And I've been in the classroom a little bit, a part of um, being a faculty member here, and as well as West LA, is that even me subconsciously sometimes um, I think. When we respond in a public setting, I think the way in which we respond to that space sometimes can amplify um, negatively for students if they don't know something. <clears throat> so I think that it's important to first praise in public and um, admonish privately. I, I know it's something that a lot of uh, my mentors who have trained me and been my professors at San Diego State who do a lot of work in this space always talk about just really the level of authentic care that you show to students is very important. Um, specifically students of color because we have to attempt to unlearn or deprogram students and those experiences they've had. So, and I think that it's really easy. Um, I just think some people authentically get it. Um, and I think that another way is just to really be very um, intentional um, and proactive in knowing about who the student really is and knowing about their story and trying to take time to really engage students outside of class, I think is also something that's very important. Um, and I think that in the community college space specifically, it's something that is a major issue because we have a lot of adjunct faculty that are three-way flyers and there are multiple campuses. So their ability to really, um, to be present with students is something that um, is lacking. And you add in the fact that most of these students are largely commuter-based, it's hard to have them navigate the system. And now they're getting touched by so many hands. And each time they get this touch, they feel more and more disenfranchised. So, so I think it's just really um, simple. I mean, I think it's like really building a relationship and, and really how do you do that on a human level? And, and I think taking out that kind of dynamic and really understand that students or creating kind of a learning environment to where we come from the paradigm that students have just as much to teach us as we have to teach them and that they're an equal in these spaces. And I think that that's really where we can start personally and show that compassion to know that, you know, I am definitely here to help you, not just to teach you and it's not really my way, that is the right way, it's our way. And having that kind of collective consensus in the classroom is very uh, powerful to create safe spaces for students to thrive and to know that, you know, this is a place of experimentation. It's okay to be wrong here. Those are great strategies, and, and the way you, you sort of boil them down to say, you know, that in a sense they're simple, but sometimes, I don't know, it's the simplest ideas that, that often are the most effective, but are for, for whatever reason are, are so challenging sometimes for people to implement. But why um, is that? I, I, you know, I don't know. I think the hard thing is scale. Mm -hmm. I can be nice. Yes. I hope I'm nice. But the question is, how do we get a thousand teachers on this campus to be nice? And maybe what, it's not only an interrupt you, but maybe what you just said, I hope I'm nice. That might be part of it too, is that a lot of this is sort of the unconscious ways in which we communicate with folks is that it's not oh, with, you know, some sort powerful. of, 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 yeah. of 
malignant intention that we're going into a situation, but it's it's just being unconscious about how we're communicating, what our body language is, you know, the mm-hmm. the ways that we might, you know, admonish a student thinking that it's humor when when really it's perceived as, exactly. as something that's very problematic. And so it's almost the feedback loop sometimes that's missing for a lot of us to really understand, you know, what our communication style is, whether it's effective or not effective. Um, and then sort of using that to continually, I think, evolve our teaching styles. But I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You're no, saying no. You're, t- you're talking about at scale, you know, how do we get it? From- how do we get a thousand, a thousand teachers to be this way? And that's always the part that I struggle with, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, in my personal life, I always feel like you can't fix crazy, right? Like, how do we, how do we get, because all that stuff is not something you read from a book. It's something that comes from the heart that you have to make this sort of emotional energy sort of transition you have to change your habits of how you talk to people and just Mm -hmm. how you see people Mm -hmm. it's been really sort of eye-opening to me that you know when we talk about culture you know i was not a great student when i was a kid i was a c student but being asian everyone expected me to go to college my teachers my 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 counselors there was not one person who said who looked at me and said you can't do this It it was an expectation and as we've been te- um, talking to different uh, professors and administrators, and a lot of times, you know, it was really shocking to me just how often people looked at them and messaged to them that this thing that you want, it's really not for you. Right. You don't look the part of it. Exactly. And, and, and just to reiterate or, or to follow up to that statement, um, do we really need a thousand teachers to really truly make a change, and I don't think that we do. Um, I think that you're naturally gonna have um, like curmudgeons and, and resistors and defiance. Um, and something else that we talk about is there's this taxonomy that um, Dr. Harris and, and Dr. Wood talk about regularly in dealing with students of color. And it's really looking at the choir, which you know we in this room seem to be, and there's other key stakeholders on our campus that are the choir. They really understand the literature, they understand the student populations, and they're trying to really raise this awareness and consciousness. And then you have the allies that kind of like are open to making that change, um, who may not know what to do, but have the willingness to implement or do whatever they do to learn the new strategies. And then you have people that resist because they don't like change or because they don't know what to do or, or they just really don't care about the population. And I, and I think the biggest issue now is this concept of equity, right? It's it's really the connection to like socialism and really helping out someone that needs help. And I think that as a nation, and we're a smaller microcosm of that, um, I just think that people really don't understand um, the systemic issues that take place in our country that create these large disparity gaps. And I think because we're not in touch or maybe knowledgeable with that or because of our own core beliefs or our familiar beliefs, um, that permeates how we interact. And, and I think that on campuses, it's a representation of that too. I mean, the one thing that I can appreciate about this current administration is that we pulled the curtain off this kind of post-racial society where like colorblindness doesn't really exist or racism isn't really here. Now it's front and center. Um, and we see in every imagery from how policies and systems work that there's a population that needs additional help and this is supposed, specifically the community college is supposed to be the greatest platform, the equalizer where the majority of the disproportionate students go to attempt to get somewhere and to you know gain some level of social mobility, but we're not seeing those outcomes. 
And that's not a system problem or an institutional problem because I really hate when people throw on that institutional word, the institution, the college. We are the college. We're the people that make up the college. This is a space, but we make it run. And I think that the more of us that have this conversation or to push this agenda in our own specific areas, we can make it happen. I mean, we probably only need 30% of that thousand to really make a change. That made me think as you were describing that, that, you know, that concept of the tipping point. Like, mm-hmm. well, exactly. Yeah, what is the tipping uh, uh, Gladwell, point? Gladwell, right? Gladwell, right. How many, yeah. how many folks right. do we need in order to sort mm-hmm. of really start to, to affect that type of change? At which, you know, for our college, it, it's interesting in the sense that um, we, we did, through our equity initiative, um, offer the course, the Teaching Men of Color course mm-hmm. um, from Dr. Wood. Um, that was an online course that folks were taking. So there's, you know, a handful of folks on college who had that training, mm-hmm. um, which I don't know if they're considered part of the, the choir now. Um, but as we continue to sort of find ways to engage faculty through professional development, through perhaps, m- you know, mediums like this to, to have these conversations, hopefully that, that starts to move the tipping point, you know, towards towards actually tipping. But I think maybe a, a piece of this, too, the the. I know you, you were just chatting about prior to the to us starting recording, Elliot, was um then that Yannette was talking about was the the real power of the student voice here. Mm. Because I think the absence of that oftentimes is 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 what makes this nameless and faceless. It, but having that student voice, that's something that within all of us, it, if we sort of have that understanding of empathy going into those conversations, then on an emotional level, um, this idea of being able to connect with, with our students and, and understanding the the incredible power of our support and of our encouragement and of caring for people um maybe those you know that again sort of pushes us in, in this other direction i i have to add, i want to just kind of touch on something mm-hmm. because before before we went down this road you were giving us um this great sort of run through of, of what brought you here mm-hmm. and as we've been discussing you've been sharing some of the strategies that i know were part of the last program that you were part of mm-hmm. so you you kind of left off the story telling us that you were um had graduated um, you went through USC, you, you wrote your dissertation there, um, you're doing some grad work, and then... I segued into San Diego State. Okay. Um, so, again, we look at people that, that do what I try to do, which is to reach and amplify. And um, there's a wonderful woman at USC, there's a lot of wonderful people that really have gotten me here. Um, her name is Patricia Toby. She was actually my second thesis chair um, at USC. And um, what initially had happened was Brandon Martin had got a new job who was my dissertation chair to have me complete my program. So I didn't have anyone to really sign off on my paperwork or to finish my, my thesis with. And um, so she came on board at SC. And um, after I left SC, I came back two years later because I began working. And I came to the, um, the black graduation and she had saw me. and. Um, She's like, hey, are you in a doctoral program? And I was like, doctoral program? I barely survived USC. So um, as the story has it, you know, she was kind of that catalyst that really, again, sparked my mind to think, like, can I really become a doctor? Like, it was never really on my radar, you know? Um, And me pursuing um, the doctoral agenda was specifically understanding where I come from and how few and far between positive images are present in this environment um, to serve students to see that there is something else besides the streets or besides athletics and I, or, or music. You know, I think that a lot of us tend to fall into three general areas because we feel like these are our best options to make a career, make large sums of money. Um, so that is what brought me to San Diego State. 
and I had applied to um, three or four schools. I actually got into USC as well for my doctorate, and they provided some money, but I wanted a new experience. Um, I had a mentor at West LA where I was doing my counseling named Shalaman Duke, who was our dean, that said San Diego State would be a good opportunity just because of who was there with regard to Dr. Wood and Dr. Harris, um, as well as being in an environment that's close enough to still be accessible to your LA network, but far away enough to create a total new environment of network that I could look for job opportunities, whether it was San Diego, LA, or even in between. Um, just because a lot of people have traversed those areas that were in our programs. Um, so that's kind of what brought me to San Diego State. And um, I was still really focused, I thought to some degree on being an academic, um, I'm sorry, an athletic administrator. I thought I really wanted to focus on athletics and kind of really shore up some issues and problems that I see um, in that realm. But I just felt that it was very narrow. And um, when I worked at West LA, I just figured that it was really the place where I needed to be. Um, because there's so many issues um, within the way that we operate as a community college, specifically with how diverse our missions are. Um, and I always call it like, you know, being a jack of all trades, but yet a master of none. You know, we're, we're, we're good in some areas, but there's a lot of other areas that need help. So um, that's kind of really the impetus for my San Diego State um, doctorate. And I want to have a larger voice at the table to advocate for the students that I felt needed the most help because I understood that story. Right. So you you finished your 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 doctorate at San Diego State, mm -hmm. and then were you working back at West College? No, so I had left West totally, but I was still teaching. Okay. Um, but I wasn't counseling in the actual office. Um, so I was really working in the research center, because I was really thinking I really wanted to understand the research piece, okay. because I wanted to be able to after I'm done to really be able to still move in this area and not really publish a lot, but still wanted to like engage in stuff that I was passionate about and really provide greater understanding um, to the intersections of academic success, uh, students of color, as well as athletics. Um, uh, food, hunger, and security is also a big passion of mine that I have, which also affects the African-American, Latino, um, American population very highly. So these are all areas that I'm very interested in that I felt that being at that program specifically because of their focus would have allowed me a platform and visibility and recognition to do a lot of things I'm a part of that journey. I presented at national conferences um, such as AERA. Um, I presented at CSEC. I published an article on the success issues of African-American community college males. So this is all a product of my ability to be at San Diego State and to learn and to be vulnerable enough in an environment that goes back to what we talked about before where I can ask for help and say, you know what, I don't know how to create a publication. Right. Um, I don't really feel comfortable getting up in front of 60, 70 people at a national conference and present on my work. Right. You know, so it's being able to be around people that really hold your hand, provide you a blueprint and allow you to go explore and say, oh, it's okay to fall down. We fall down. We felt um, have fallen down before as well. And, you know, this is an opportunity for you to, you know, really expand in areas that you never thought that you would be in. And, you know, it's really what segued me back to this opportunity. Um, once I finished uh, my doctorate, uh, which officially was last fall, because I defended in October and officially graduated in the, uh, the December, I was also teaching here, a part of the ACE program at okay. Reseda and North Hollywood. So um, I really love the classroom space. Um, for a lot of time, I thought that the counseling general function was not directly my cup of tea just because there wasn't enough continued interaction with students. 
it was like a revolving door where I couldn't track students after I saw them. I didn't know, you know, I couldn't really do any programming. And the things that really filled my cup, I wasn't really doing. So I, I just love the classroom specifically and specifically the dual enrollment area because I love the um, commonality and um, the impact that I could have on high school seniors getting ready to embark on, you know, that pivotal transition of the high school to college gap. So that's really how I got here and um, had a great time being a part of the ACE faculty here. And um, so what's the ACE faculty? So ACE is a part of the dual enrollment um, initiative with the college that looks at all of the actual feeder high schools in the area. So they specifically focus on the outreach piece for students to provide um, early access to college level courses through AB 288. Um, and what that does is they send a representative from the actual college to go to the actual high schools to teach certain classes that would be of interest and benefit to the student population. So for me specifically, I taught at NoHo from 10th grade to 12th grade students. Um, and then at, um, I'm sorry, at Reseda, 10th to 12th grade. And then my NoHo class is predominantly all 12th graders. Um, so these are people that are really getting a familiarity with the college experience. I mean, it kind of helps to kind of create grit and determination, letting them know that, you know what, wow, I'm in high school and I completed a college course and I got an A. So, you know, this kind of really spurs their curiosity to maybe build a better relationship with that college, be it Valley, if they're not going to a four-year environment, um, where we can really provide an easier transition for them to understand how to navigate the system to enroll, be admitted, set up their majors in their academic planning and things of that nature. And what topics were you teaching? Um, so I taught uh, Counseling One, which is an intro to college class. At West LA, I taught um, uh, College Success as well as Student Success Seminar. So for the most part, it's really college preparatory um, learning as well as learning about your career and major. So it's really how to transition and be a successful student in different techniques with regard to critical thinking and planning and time management. And did that transition you into the Black Scholars Program? Um, it did, actually. I was looking nationally. Um, I had interviewed a lot over the summer um, for different positions, from director and associate dean level positions, um, looking at TRIO, but it was specifically looking at equity initiatives as well as special populations, because I knew for a fact that I wanted to do programming with students like myself or with, where that I had a passion with with regard to African-American and Hispanic-American males primarily. So for people who aren't aware, What's your definition of equity and how does that and what your vision is for equity at Valley College? Uh, so, I mean, I think for me, the simple definition is just a, redis uh, a redistribution of resources to populations that need them ultimately. Um, but the way that I see equity or equity mindedness is really being student ready. Um, I think that we talk a lot of times specifically, I'm sure Scott can relate from an academic standpoint and resource center that everyone has this like jargon or narrative about college readiness. Like these students aren't college ready, but are we student ready? Right. How can we look at our systems and our policies to know that we have the best interest of every student population accounted for? And there's a lot of students in the periphery and my passion is to be very radical about those students and making sure that they get the access and the resources that they need to be successful here. So if you had, let's say, a big budget <laughs> what is it that, what is it, what do you think would be the most impactful things that we could add in the future? Um, so if I had a big budget looking at specifically community colleges in general, I think that um, it would definitely be to expand the dual enrollment support. Um, I think a lot of people talk about FTS and getting students here. Enrollment is down across California. 
Um, I think that a lot of that is because students are not really familiar with, with, with those areas and really having a lot of peer mentoring and peer navigation and really connecting transfer students back to the pipeline in different facets. And I think that once you look at that with regard to um, guided pathways and how we're looking to kind of facilitate easier transitions, I, I think we're moving in that direction. Um, I think Promise is a good initiative. I think um, the AB705 initiative to really look at how we can restructure developmental education is something that also I think is very important because the majority of the populations that are disproportionately impacted languish in developmental education and never make it out. You know, um, I, I don't know what the statistical number is, but I think 4% of students that start either one or two levels below college level English or math complete their intended goal. Um, and then you look at the stop out remediation piece. Um, and, and to add to that, I, I really think that cultural competency is very important. Um, and I just think that we're not really doing that well anywhere. And it's really the accountability piece. Like, how can we be more accountable? Um, how can we go into our divisional meetings and say, hey, look, these are our numbers. What are we doing for this population? So when you say we, who is included in that we? We is everyone. Um, the, the classified professionals who I think are the most important people on our campus. Um, I, I think it's the administrators, it's the faculty. And it's also student accountability. Um, I think students have to be accountable for the students as well. And that's one thing that we're trying to really be a part of with regard to um, the Black Scholars Movement is really creating intercultural connections with other clubs and just really being accountable to help us all succeed because a high tide raises all boats. And I believe that, you know, getting the right people, I mean, from my transition in two months that I've been here, Scott has been very integral. Dr. Morris has been very important. Dean Pipkins, um, my boss, uh, Yannette Martin, has been, you know, helping me navigate, you know, a lot of the landscape. And to his point with regard to the tipping point is, you know, you have to find the people that are the boundary spanners that can walk into some of the more restricted areas of like the faculty union and the Senate and really um, advocate and, and really build those relationships that are necessary to push an agenda in the right direction. Um, so for me, it's really looking at, you know, moving beyond tokenism because I think that schools are getting money, you know, but how are we really allocating or applying that money to really rectify the situations at hand? And what is the decision making that's going into that process to make sure that, A, this is what the student populations or the people that um, are most affected by these decisions want, and if it's something that is um, of value to them. And, you know, back to the student voice of college readiness, like where on a campus can you really find the student voice in any decision-making process? I think that that's really where we need to move, is really trying to find a way to create larger amplification of student voices beyond, you know, your stereotypical ASU or, or associate student body organization because they don't really fully represent the student body. They're just a small portion of it and they're doing a good job as student leaders, but it's a collective intentionality of understanding, as Scott once said, the identity of the campus, what is our agenda, what are our goals, and how can we move in that direction? And I hope to be a part of that. Well, I, I, think, I think that we have such an opportunity with you here on campus and, and being the, 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 the face and the, the person behind the Black Scholars Program, that perhaps that's one, one space where we continue to mm -hmm. 
to amplify the student voice because of the challenge that we've had before that always comes up. It's an, almost an excuse, right, for the community colleges, for Valley in particular, is that it's a commuter college. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, people take their classes and then they go and that they don't oftentimes have the time or, 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 or the ability to stay and be involved in, in, you know, various extracurricular activities. And so that's something that, you know, and then the evening students come and there's no services available or very exactly. limited services available for those evening students. And so that, that question that you've raised or that you've pointed out, this need to amplify the student voice, if, if we had more resources, or, or maybe it's not more resources, but it's, it's redirecting the resources that we do have, as you said, well, um, I, to, to doing that. I, right? think, I, mean, I think that the problem <laughs> is is that it, you'll get students to come if, the, if what we provide to them gives them value. Amen to that. Right? So if we have something where it's efficient and they believe it's real, like you said, tokenism, mm -hmm. right? As soon as I go to a meeting, the first question I have is, will this change anything? And if it will, I'll come back. And if it won't, I won't, right? Amen to that. And if we can, if we can create these clear pathways of <laughs> this, this will actually matter. I mean, the people who are engineering our program are students who are not getting paid. You and I are here. We're not getting paid. Every person who's being interviewed comes here not getting paid, right? But if you create a meaningful one hour, we have people lined up to come here. Right. Right. And if we can have those kind of experiences on the campus where we're not feeling felt like, hey, let's play grown up for an hour, but it's meaningful and we'll listen and we'll actually change. We'll put money behind it. Students will come. And I think that speaks to the the sometimes lack of, but it's certainly there in some circles, the optimism that, that folks have in terms of believing what we're capable of doing. And so, you know, the, the, the scholarship that's been done on hope is fascinating, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the, the, the real power, it, it, even as that is as far as an indicator for academic achievement, you know, some of that scholarship and research is highlighting that hope is critical. Mm -hmm. You know, if we, if we believe it, if we believe that we can have a tipping point, if that we can affect change and that we're all working and moving in the same direction towards collaborating on something that's bigger than ourselves, then, then that is sort of the, I, I think, the inspirational hope aspect. So like you said, John, like what we're doing right here, this is, this is one sort of, of element of hope mm -hmm. and something that, you know, I want to contribute to this because it's bigger than me, it's bigger than what we're doing, and hopefully it can affect some sort of change. Those are the things that I think pull people in. How do we create, Elliot, how do we create more of those? You know, and maybe somewhat, if you share a little bit about what, what your plans are with some of the upcoming Black Scholars events, I think those are, those mm -hmm. are some of the answers that you've already provided. Thank you, thank you. Um, so just to follow up again, and you know, you're striking a lot of chords, and I like every time you speak, I feel something go off, and, and it's kind of funny because the one thing I always say when people ask you like that infamous question of what do you do, you know, I t like my, I'm a hope dealer. And, uh, and like it's, it's, it's very <laughs> funny because I actually got the terminology from um, the celebration that we had for Black History Heritage Week. Um, the group that we had here from Oakland who went to my actual undergraduate college, um, it's one of their songs. It's called Hope Dealer. And they deal with elementary school students um, and really helping with the persistence issues there and retention. And that's really what it is. It's providing hope. You know, it's kind of really trying to eradicate hopelessness, and and it's a very pervasive reality for students. Because when they come into my office, some of it is academic counseling, but a lot of it is just like really letting them know that they can truly do what they intend to do. And I'm an, a physical example, a physical example of like really one option of what that looks like. 
I mean, as far as black scholars, um, which is still relatively in its infancy, um, we've been very successful in really utilizing um, the student voice and really creating uh, events that they really want to have. And it's not just events that the black BSU wants to have, but events that other clubs have said that, you know, have been very transformational and very entertaining for them. Um, however, we still also want to keep it co-curricular as well as academic. So what we've really rolled out for this semester is looking at Woke Wednesdays, which is like an elevated consciousness around multicultural issues um, that is not only black issues, but it's things that kind of intersect us all. Things like microaggressions that we experience, things such as masculinity and feminism, which are really at the forefront or emerging issues socially, um, looking at stereotype threat and imposter syndrome. And I talk about that all the time. Like I have students in my office that have 3.7 GPAs and feel like, you know, they're not accomplished. And I'm like, I didn't have that. I'm a doctor. You know, like I don't think I've ever had a 3.7 in a semester ever, yet alone a cumulative. And look at where I'm at. You know, it's it's possible if you really just believe. And I think that that is something that's very structured. So um, we're in concert with Scott and his department, as well as rolling out the discussion pieces for Woke Wednesdays. And we're doing the open mics. Um, every first and third Wednesday of the month for the remainder of the semester. Um, we have some other items on our um, to-do list that we're still working with. BSU is actually having a meeting right now then going over some of these elements. Um, mainly we're looking at, again, back to the food and hunger insecurity, we want to have a campus-wide food drive. Uh, we have a food pantry that we got a grant for and the great work that Emily Mutunda and Ellie are doing with uh, Cal Works and Helping Hands. So I just really want to support, you know, this movement and, and really bring more awareness to how pervasive it is on campus. Because we actually had a study done that showed us that 50% of our student population at Valley specifically said that they were very or um, had significant or very significant food insecurity. And I think that that's pervasive. And I know that it's an issue because I put food in my office every week and it goes without questions asked. And, you know, it just shows that students really have other needs that also affect their, you know, student success and, and their ability to persist. And it's not just academic, it's the non-cognitive. Could you explain the CalWorks uh, food program? Because I just found out about that and I just, I just think it's wonderful. It made me really proud of our college. But yes. could you go into detail about yeah. that? So, so I don't have all of the ins and outs of what they're doing specifically, but um, Emily Mutunda and, um, Ellie and, and the Helping Hands, it, it's really a project because it's not necessarily fully institutionalized yet. But but they just, uh, from my understanding, it started from people in CalWorks helping a specific student that needed some additional assistance. And it turned into this great big project of finding out that this was an issue that was germane to other student populations on our campus. So they've been creating great partnerships, bringing in various um, entities across the actual um, municipalities in the area to really help fight hunger on our campus and in the local area. And um, they have fresh produce, they have really high quality food, um, uh, essentials that anyone can come into the office and have access to, no questions asked. And if they need something, they have a, um, a, they have a full closet um, of clothes and things of that nature as well for anyone needing shelter. They're making connections for housing and, and um, partnering with companies to help pay students who are homeless is, um, their actual first down payment. I had a student in my office just yesterday um, that had just disclosed how helpful that they were. And I can just see it in her face 
because she was actually living out of her car with her daughter and she just said like verbatim like Emily and Ellie and, and you know the Cal works and helping hands has been pivotal to not just her like life stability but her school success and how adamant she is right now on getting out transferring and moving to a place that's really more cost effective so she's looking to move out of state somewhere where she can really have a better situation for her family so you know kudos to all of the work that you know calworks is doing because it definitely is transformational for my students and which building is calworks in um it's in the new building in uh aca, ACA yeah. it's in the aca on the first floor um, I don't know the actual room number, but it's very. It's uh, on the first floor. It's very visible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. When she told me about it, I'm, I just felt so proud of our campus. Yes. It was really proud, and when you talk to Ellie about it, she says, "I buy organic vegetables mm-hmm. and fruit because they deserve it. They, that's what they should have. Exactly. I buy it for my own kids. That's what I buy for them. Just really proud mm-hmm. that we as a campus do this. Yes. I, I had heard a part of this before too and it, one of the things that made me proud as well or just so grateful was I know that one of the uh, the staff members Hector in shipping and receiving along with somebody else I, I can't remember the I'm not sure the other individual's name but they were going and they, they've been doing it for a while to the farmers markets on Sundays mm-hmm. um, and going there and, and, and had the relationship with the farmers markets to bring that produce back to Valley and that's people again doing something out of you know their 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 own sense of, of, of here's how we can contribute here's how we can help here's what's needed without any other sort of, of compensation right. <laughs> or anything else other than hey this this is important and this this is something that, that, that we all need and and, and when you meet them it doesn't surprise you that they do it no not at all because it's passion work you can see it yeah and and i think that's a lot of the big divide in most institutions of education like some people really get into education or student services or teaching because they really have a passion for it some people get into it for different reasons but whatever the reasons are um, I think experiences tend to shape differently on how that effect um, may land on a student. And, and I think that if you get enough of those people together and you said, how can we really move this needle? Um, I think really you look at hiring practices, you know, like you look at these like really structured things. You look at the RFPT process for like, you know, race, tenure and promotion. Like, how are we incorporating in program review these elements of like equity, these elements of diversity how are we assessing if this professor is giving the students what they need not academically but holistically and comprehensively and i think that until we look at data points that get on those areas then it's going to be much of the same and the status quo will continue but you know i told people what i was going to do when i got here i'm starting to do just that i'm still learning the lay of the land but i'm here to push an agenda um, and it's the agenda for students in the periphery and making sure that you know, everyone has what they need to be successful. You know, like right now we're looking at book vouchers um, as well, or book grants rather through through our office um, that is going to uh, supplement or complement some of the other things that other campuses are doing specifically uh, for the black scholar students. Um, and, and just really looking at other innovative ways um, that we can continue to support students to getting to their um, other resources on campus as well as getting to their goal. and. You know, for me, Scott is a big part of that because semester to semester persistence is the fundamental way to get there. But and then wrapping around this love and this authentic care to provide students with an experience that they want to share with other people. You know, like I think the biggest telltale sign would be, um, would you recommend for a student to go here? And I ask students that all the time in my office. Some of them say no. Some of them say, of course. But everyone's experience is different. 
So it's really distilling what works or what the common themes are across these groups. And we need to just focus on that. But Well, Elliot, let me ask you this question. I ask everyone this. Um, if you were going to give yourself advice back when you were 18, okay. back when you're making these choices, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, it would be to fail fast. <laughs> I think the, the biggest thing that I've learned in my life, in my short years, um, in all this expensive education I've had is that I don't know anything. Um, and the more you learn, the more that I realize how much I don't know. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, whatever you want to do or accomplish, it's better to leap on blind faith at a young age than when you get older before you start to have a family, before you have to like live for other individuals. And I think that, that would be the biggest thing. And you know, never underestimate the power of a single voice and a collective group. Um, because I do definitely think that we've seen in the last couple of years that you know, there's strength in numbers. Um, I think the greatest accomplishment that I've seen in probably my 36 years of life just happened this past weekend with the students marching for their rights with regard to gun reform and just the level of young people that really can provide an archetype and model for our politicians to understand what real true leadership and influence looks like. And that's just really what it is, is don't be afraid, fail fast and learn from it. You know, make your tweaks here and there and then continue to move forward. Um, because no matter what's in front of you, you can get through anything if you really gut it out and really follow your you know, passion and, and, and follow your plan. Elliot, how can students find you? Where, what's the best way for them to contact you moving forward? Okay, so um, and I also want to take the time to make a special shout out to the STEM department here. Um, I think one of the biggest things they provided for me was an app. It's called Remind. I did not know about it before I got here. It has been, hands down, the most transformational communication system that I've been able to have. I have about roughly 60 to 65 students um, on the application, and I can communicate with them in a group announcement, group messages, so anything that's going on on campus, I keep them in the loop with regard to that. Um, my office is located in the Student Services Building, um, room 209 in the Mosaic Center, which is right above the admissions office. Um, my email address is Coney, E-C-O-N-E-Y-E, at lavc.edu. And I mean, the benefit of my office is that you can walk in, and I'm very accessible Monday through Wednesday. Um, I'm hearing that maybe in the summer or starting the new year that may change. I may be here five days a week. So if that happens, that will be additional benefit for students. Um, and, you know, we're just keeping the train moving in the right direction and providing um, awareness and engagement for students that want that and need it to be successful, not just at LAVC, but moving forward to their next destination, whether it be transfer or certificate or completion. Well, Elliot, I, we can't thank you enough for, for coming in this afternoon and, and sharing with us your, your, your backstory, sort of what brought you to Valley, and then sharing with us, too, your, your insight and your expertise in terms of, of sort of looking at the landscape here at Valley and, and thinking through what, what's going to have the, the most impact on, on students and faculty. Um, thank you so much for the work that you're doing with Black Scholars. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We're thank so you glad so to much you. for having me. Thank you for the work that you guys are all doing. And I think that this is a very great platform to create dialogue. And at the very least, um, I think that this should be also something included in, uh, you know, the professional development piece is really distilling the common themes and, and creating something um, 
with that. And I think you guys are definitely onto something with this broadcast. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Roy. The Valley College Connection podcast is dedicated to sharing the dynamics of our community and supporting the fascinating lives of students, faculty, and those in pursuit of college life information. The Valley College Connection podcast is produced by KVCM and supported by the LABC Academic Resource Center. The content heard on this podcast does not reflect the faculty, staff, and students of Los Angeles Valley College. Thank you.